Our text is the New Testament lesson from 1 Corinthians 15, which was just read. And just prior to that text, the Apostle Paul speaks to the Corinthian church and he says, The gospel which I preach to you consists in this. This is the nub of it. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. And what he does there, again, this is just prior to the text which was read this morning. What he does there is he produces a rather long and provocative list of some six or seven hundred witnesses, eyewitnesses to the reality of the resurrection. It's an astonishing catalog at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. I encourage you to take a look at it. Peter saw him, he says. The twelve apostles saw him. Some five over 500 witnesses saw him at one time, Paul says, and some of them, even most of them, are still alive. You can go talk to them. I even know the proportion that are still alive of the 500 that saw him. James, his half-brother, who doubted him, saw him. Then another group saw him. And finally, Paul says, I saw him. And so he preaches this, this gospel this good news, and the linchpin of the gospel is that Jesus has been raised, bodily raised, from the dead. And the apostles' vigorous contention is, this is no mere wish fulfillment. Right? That's why he adduces this list, this long list of witnesses. It's meant to show that the resurrection is an open, public, historical fact. And so when we come to verse 12, which is where our text this morning starts, we read something surprising in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. We read that though Christ is proclaimed by Paul as raised from the dead, some Corinthians are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. So it appears that some, not, not all, but some of them deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, exactly what they did believe is hard to say, but it appears that they may have interpreted the resurrection in some mystical, non-bodily sense. Perhaps he rose in some purely spiritual way. But notice, they did this because they had an assumption that they weren't willing to question a presupposition, a preconceived notion. This is often the problem with us. They were unwilling to part with this idea. And it's an idea that they inherited sort of naturally, like breathing, from their Greek culture. Namely, that there is no resurrection of the dead. This is not an argued position for the Corinthians. It's just their starting assumption about reality. This is where they start, there is no resurrection of the dead. Now the ancient Greeks, and remember Corinth is a Greek city, they believed in the immortality of the soul. The soul lives on, but the body, which is a sort of necessary evil, is simply discarded. Dead bodies simply do not Rise. And of course, many moderns, if they're not complete materialists, believe something like this. 
Indeed, many Christians believe something like this. Sure, we are spiritual and we live on after death in some form. Maybe our souls go to heaven. But the body? The body? What does that have to do with the Christian hope? And Paul's answer that we'll be looking at here is that it has everything to do with it. Dying and going to heaven are not the great hope of the church. The scripture teaches that the great hope of the church is the bodily resurrection from the dead. And it's that which Paul is going to defend here. He's going to refuse, refuse to spiritualize away the resurrection. And so we'll look at this under three headings. The first one is the hypothetical. That's in verses 12 through 19. And then the fact in verses 20 through 28. And then the implications, 29 through 34. The hypothetical, the fact, the implications. So first, the hypothetical. And by this I mean that Paul grants, he grants for the sake of argument, the Corinthian position. Hypothetically, let's grant what some of you are saying. The dead are not raised. What then follows? That's what Paul does first here. And he expounds the implications of this. And they're quite devastating. So he says in verse 13, you know, if there is, as a general principle, no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. This is a pretty simple syllogism. Maybe you took logic in high school or, co or college, right? It would go like this. No one is ever raised from the dead. Christ has died. Therefore, Christ is not raised. And yet, Paul has spent the previous 11 verses declaring and documenting the public reality of Christ's bodily resurrection. And he continues, he says, if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is useless. It's empty. It's futile. What are we all doing here if Christ is not raised? The whole thing's a charade. Notice the centrality that Paul attaches to preaching. God saves people, Paul says, through the foolishness, the weakness of human preaching, proclamation. And central to preaching is the resurrection. No resurrection, no preaching. Right? Perhaps a lot of badgering, moralizing, but no preaching. No resurrection, no preaching. Preaching a dead Christ is a form of lunacy to Paul. No matter how entertaining and how socially hip and relevant the preacher might be, preaching a dead Christ is a form of lunacy. The Christ who is preached is the risen Christ or else preaching is powerless, impotent, vain. And not only this, Paul says, at the end of verse 14 of the Corinthians, your faith is useless. Not only is preaching useless and vain, your faith is in vain. Faith is useless without the resurrection. Faith, in fact, is produced by the risen Christ. That's our conviction. It's a kind of resurrection in your personal being. 
and it unites you to the risen Christ. What good is belief in the decomposing corpse of a carpenter turned itinerant rabbi preacher? Who cares? If Christ isn't raised, then the church is a largely irrelevant social club. And what it ends up doing, and what churches that deny the resurrection end up doing, is simply echoing the culture back to itself. Breathlessly panting with their tongues out to tell the culture what it already knows and believes. And then it loses its, all of its prophetic reason for existence. Anyone can tell the culture what it already believes. Dead fish go with the stream. You have to be alive to swim against the stream. And even more than all this, Paul says in verse 15, more than that, if the resurrection didn't happen, we are found to be false witnesses of God. Paul has testified. These are legal words. We are witnesses. We testify that God raised Christ. And if he didn't, then we are false witnesses of God. Because the resurrection is God's act. It's the vindication of God and his promises. And to deny it is to slander God. And it's a slander which leads eventually to outright denial of God himself. The denial of the resurrection, Paul says, takes or reduces the God of Abraham. The God who calls things which do not exist into being. It reduces him to a liar because he's made promises. And if he's not a liar, then he's just a grandfatherly moralist in the sky. And we don't need the God of Israel who raised Jesus from the dead for that. That's why we have Mr. Rogers, if we want that. So the catalog, then, of tragic implications for believing the dead are not raised continues at the end of verse 17. And it would come as a shock to the, to the Corinthians, given their Greek way of looking at things. He says, and you are still in your sins. So you Corinthians think you're just going to float off into some oneness with the cosmos? Maybe off into heaven with some vaporous, wispy Jesus and the angels? Paul says, that's not, that's not the case. You're not even saved. You're still in your sins. It's not just that your faith is empty without the resurrection of Christ. It's that you are lost. There are no disembodied alternatives to the resurrection. None. Deny the resurrection, Paul says, it means you've denied the cross. No resurrection, no cross, no gospel, no forgiveness. And in verse 18, the same dreadful conclusion for those who have died. Paul says those who have fallen asleep, it's a euphemism, those who have died in Christ, they are, they are lost. He says they have perished. Again, those who have died, your loved ones, O Corinthians, your friends who believed in this Jesus, they have perished if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. There are no 
disembodied alternatives to the resurrection. Without it, everything is lost. There's no floating off into the ether. So finally, in verse 19, Paul sums this all up. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ. If our hope in Christ is only about this life. He says, we, we Christians, are of all people the most to be pitied. Nothing, he says, is more pitiable than Christians who think they can discard the bodily resurrection. Because it reduces our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to something which is shrunk down and pertains only to this life. This brief puff or vaporous existence. And that, Paul says, doesn't just make us pitiable or pathetic, which is the word here. Notice he says, it makes us, that is Christians who deny the belief in the bodily resurrection of Christ, it makes us of all people, of all people, the most to be pitied. It makes us more pathetic than anyone else. Imagine a national convention of pathetic people. The most pathetic people you can find on the planet all gathered into one place with tables and displays and PowerPoint presentations. Broadcasting their patheticness abroad. And then in walks a Christian who denies the resurrection and Paul says, you win. You are the most pathetic of all human beings. Better to be anything, Paul says, anything, but someone who professes to be a Christian and denies the resurrection. It's pathetic beyond pathetic. It's like being an Irishman who denies the existence of Ireland. So that's the hypothesis which Paul has taken off for the Corinthians. They start with this assumption, well, the dead aren't raised. He wants them to know, look, this is not a little harmless presupposition you're working with here. It eviscerates the Christian faith. And so the second point is the fact. Verse 20, one of Paul's glorious, you know, uh, intrusions into a line of argument, but in Fact, but in fact, contrary to your hypothesis, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul never doubted it, of course. He's an eyewitness to it. Christ has, in fact, been raised. Not in hypothesis, in fact. And he's been raised, the second half of verse 20 says, as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. And the reference here is to the feast of first fruits in the Old Testament. And the significance is twofold. First, the sheaf of the first fruits was waved. The first fruits were reaped, and then the sheaf was waved before the Lord on the day after the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. The day after the Sabbath, the eighth day, or if you will, the first day of the new week. 
And so the, 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 this very festival itself anticipated the resurrection of Christ from the dead on the day after the Sabbath, on the first day, this day, the eighth day, where the early Christians used to call Sunday the eighth day of the week because it was the first day of a new creation. Seven days, boom, the eighth day is the beginning of the new creation. So today, then, is the eighth day. It's the first day of the new week. And every Lord's Day is a feast of the resurrection. The day itself proclaims it. And if Christ is the first fruits, then that means he guarantees the whole harvest. When you reap the first fruits, the harvest is certain. The first fruits, after all, are a part of the harvest. And this means that the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, of all who belong to Christ is as certain as his resurrection. And Paul continues, he says that Christ as the first fruits is the new Adam. In verse 21, he says this, since death came through a man, that is Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, that is Christ. Two representative figures in the human race, and your life is either bound up with one or the other of them. There's no human being that escapes either being in Adam or in Christ. Death through Adam, life through Christ. And every man as one Puritan put it, all of humanity hangs from the girdles of these two men. As you sit here this morning, you are in covenant. You have a head, a representative. It is either Adam, and if so, then that end is death, or it is Christ, and if so, then the end is resurrection from the dead. And there's an order, Paul says, to this resurrection. In verse 23, he says there'll be a sequence. Christ who is the first fruits, and then when he comes, all those who belong to him, the rest of the harvest will be raised. Notice something important here. The resurrection of Jesus opens out into the second coming. It's the pledge that he will come again in glory to raise his own people, even as he's been raised. Deny the resurrection, you will end up denying the second coming. Of course, we've seen already that in principle, when you deny the resurrection, you've denied everything. So Christ is raised, Paul says, and when he comes, his people are raised. And then in verse 24, he says, then comes the end. This is gloriously simple. When Christ comes, the end comes. This is why the creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. Amen. There are no fancy end time scenarios in the creed, are there? There are no, then this happens, and then that happens, and then 14 people do this for three years, and seven people do that for nine years, and, and you know, there's no footnote. There's, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. Amen. When he comes, the end comes. The resurrection of the dead comes. And he delivers the kingdom up to the Father. Paul says here, after he's destroyed all dominion and all authority and all power, some of this destruction of evil has already happened and is happening progressively. For the text says he must reign he, until he has put all enemies under his feet. And so the resurrection means Jesus is Lord now. He reigns now. 
He is subduing people to himself now, and he will subdue everything opposed to his glorious rule later. And so the resurrection, it turns out, determines the whole sweep, the scope of cosmic history. This is not one fact among others. This is the fact which gives all other facts meaning. It's the only ground for hope in this world pervaded by the brutal, unyielding, wholly democratic reality of death itself. The resurrection alone answers to the human plight, to the human predicament. Right? The human predicament cannot be construed simply in social or economic terms, as real or as acute as some of those problems may be. The human plight has this basic, pervasive, raw, terrifying reality stamped on it, namely death. And not mystical death, bodily death and decomposition. And any religion that doesn't answer to that, and they don't, is not even worth consideration. It's not addressing the fundamental human need. The fundamental human need is this, immortality, resurrection from the dead. Everything else just makes you a little more comfortable or pleasant before the grave. What human beings need is for death to be shattered. And what Jesus Christ offers you in the gospel is the shattering of death. Thus, the central uniqueness and distinctiveness of the Christian religion. The resurrection is not one fact among others. Throw it out and all the facts are just a random competing smashing around of things in, in a universe that is essentially a, a global burial plot. A cosmic graveyard. And finally at his coming, verse 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is already triumphed over by Christ, but he shall finally obliterate it as the last enemy at his coming. So we should be clear on this. Death is an enemy, Paul says. There are, there are basically two approaches to death in our culture. Three, if you count glorifying it, but let's leave that one aside. There are two dominant ones. The main one is aversion. We simply ignore it. We have this amazing capacity not to think about what is the most dominant, basic, pervasive, fundamental, and important and decisive fact of our existence. We cannot think about it for days, for weeks, for months. Some people never think about it, it appears. So we just ignore it. We pretend the human condition is not really so desperate. And we avert our eyes from it. The second thing we do, and we do it to sort of comfort ourselves when we do look at it, is we naturalize death. We say, hey, it's just a, nat it's just a natural part of the life process. You know, all things must pass. It's like a nap. Paul will have none of this. He says, death is an enemy. 
It can't be ignored. You can't paper it over by some non-bodily, spiritualized view of the departed. You know, going off into the ether and going to their favorite place or whatever. It has to be taken, Paul says, with full seriousness. This is a gospel which takes our condition with full seriousness. This, you know, Solzhenitsyn used to say, if the gospel doesn't play in the cancer ward, what good is it? Well, if it doesn't play when, when, when relatives and loved ones are bent over coffins grieving, what good is it? Because that's where everybody ends up. And God has taken us seriously and our plight in Jesus and in his resurrection. And he will finally annihilate it. This whole glorious panoramic, this consummation, it unravels. It unravels without the, the concrete embodied resurrection. Third then, finally, the implications. And by this I mean the implications for our lives. Paul uses himself as an example. In verse 30 he says, Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? In verse 31 he says, I face death every day. He says, look, my whole apostolic ministry is marked by daily crucifixions, by perpetual danger, by lashes and stonings and sufferings of every imaginable sort. If you have read the lists of Paul's, uh, there's these long lists in these letters to the very Corinthians that he's writing to here of almost superhuman exertion by the Apostle Paul in the face of opposition. And what he's saying here is, what kind of a fool would live this way if Christ is not raised? Like, if Christ is just a wonderful moral teacher, great, I'll try and learn from him, but I'm not going to suffer. I'm not going to live like the apostle lived. I mean, how would the agony of the Christian life, the self-denial, the bearing of the cross, be anything but absurd if there's no resurrection? No resurrection, no ministry. No resurrection, no Christian service. He says in verse 32, If I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? He's writing this letter from Ephesus. And he's recalling the fierce opposition that he faced there from the practitioners of the occult. The devotees of the uh, temple of Artemis. They met Paul in Ephesus like a frenzied lynch mob. And so the wild beasts he refers to here are people. You know, demonically driven people to be sure, but vicious human enemies of the gospel. Paul says, why fight with these people at the risk of my life and limb if there's no resurrection from the dead? If the dead are not raised, he concludes, and here he cites Isaiah, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Those are always the two alternatives. I know they have been for me. I know they have been for Christian philosophers and theologians and thinkers down the centuries. There are two alternatives. Christ or nothing. Christ or nihilism. And those are the options for Paul. If Christ is not raised from the dead, let us eat, let us drink, and let us be merry. He doesn't say, you know, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, let us try and be as good as we can be here in this meaningless existence. Be kind to our neighbors. Take your kids to Boy Scouts. You know what I mean? 
you know, practice random acts of kindness. That would be great. Paul says, what are, you, what are you kidding me? If Christ is not raised, do whatever you want. Like Nietzsche said, you know, if God is dead, then there's just violence and power. Do whatever you want. Don't be a coward, you know. I like real atheists. I like atheists who step up to the microphone and say, look, if atheism is true, I can slit your throat right now. I don't like friendly atheists. Well, I'm an atheist, but I can be a good person. Well, who cares? I mean, you might, want, you might choose to be a good person, but it's just as random as choosing to, to not. You might choose to be nice to your children and, and take them to Boy Scouts, but in, but in the atheist universe, it's the same thing as hacking them to pieces and burying them in the backyard. This is a random cosmos of brute facts. It means the whole cosmos means nothing. How can your life mean anything? Stop telling me how good you can be. If Christ is not raised from the dead, eat, drink, be merry. Do what you want. Tomorrow you die. So this should be a pretty telling text for us because the truth be told, most of us live in a sort of shadow lands where we believe the resurrection, but we're really going to not expend a whole lot of our own blood and toil in advancing it. We hedge our bets. We'd like the best of both worlds. Just in case this resurrection thing really isn't true. And Paul's whole passage here, his whole life's an accusation, a living accusation of this approach. He's saying here at the end of the, of the passage, look, if the resurrection is true, get your skin in the game, all of it. It's the only rational response. If it's not true, do whatever you want. That's the only rational response. And if it's not true, go be a pagan. At least that's less pitiable. Right? Don't be pathetic. Stop straddling the fence. And so he concludes in verse 33, don't be misled or deceived. He thinks it's a delusion to say the dead are not raised, for in fact, Christ, the firstfruits, has been, past tense, raised, and in fact, seen. So he says, it's a delusion to live as if it's not true. Nothing's more ethically practical than the resurrection. He next cites this Greek dramatist, Menander. Bad company corrupts good morals. If you hang around deniers of the resurrection or around those who practically deny it, it'll corrupt you, Paul says. You'll lose your salt. And so in verse 34, he says, come back to your senses, to the Corinthians, and stop sinning. He's saying something like this. You need to have the light of the resurrection shine on you to awaken you from the vaporous dream that your life has become. Which is what happens to us quickly and easily, right? We, we meander through our days and nights and weeks and months in some sort of vaporous dream. And Paul says, awake, O sleeper, that the risen Christ might shine on you. So the hypothesis of the Corinthians is false. It destroys the gospel. The fact is Christ has been raised. He's the first fruits. He's the second Adam. He's the cosmic Lord under whose rule the world unfolds. And his resurrection absolutely guarantees the resurrection of those who are in him, who trust him, who embrace his gospel. And what is the apostles' conclusion? Live like it. 
Awake from your stupor. The resurrection is a fact. And it is also, as a fact, a joyful call to service in the indestructible life of Christ. Amen.